Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we are here to continue our journey through the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, as we'll be doing every September forever, with A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. <laughs> and we did not mean to do that in unison. But it worked out just perfectly. Revenge. <laughs> but A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which we are doing today, is a 1985 American supernatural slasher film directed by Jack Shoulder and written by David Chaskin with music by Christopher Young. The film is the second, obviously, installment in the Elm Street franchise and stars Mark Patton, Kim Myers, and Robert Rustler. Robert Englund reprises his role as Freddy Krueger, the burned dream-stalking slasher. The plot focuses on Jesse Walsh, a teenager who begins to have recurring nightmares after moving into the house of Nancy Thompson from the first film (laughs) the film was not as well received as the first initially but has found a resurgence in popularity and is often discussed as having homoerotic themes and subtexts oh i wonder if we're going to talk about those on this homoerotic horror podcast we might maybe are we homoerotic yes nothing else we're homophobic (laughs) self-hating gay no (laughs) We're homoerotic. We just make everyone else home. (laughs) (laughs) That's why it's so hard for me to get a date. (laughs) Okay, listeners. You are all our children now. This is A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. The gay one. (laughs) Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. He is not patient. And he is not a welcome visitor. But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. Dad! I'm in trouble. You've had some scary dreams, okay? Help! Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside him. Fight him! You are not afraid of him. He doesn't even exist. Freddy Krueger is back on Elm Street. Get out of here, Lisa! Fight him! Watch out for him. He'll be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. Freddy's Revenge. Five years after Freddy Krueger's apparent defeat, the Walshes have moved into Nancy Thompson's former home. Their teenage son, Jesse, played by Mark Patton, has a nightmare about being stalked by Krueger driving a school bus. He wakes up and attributes the dream to the unusual heat in the room. Jesse goes to school with his friend Lisa, played by Kim Myers, whom he's interested in romantically, 
but is too shy to flirt with her. Jesse gets into a fight with a boy named Grady, played by Robert Russler, whom he is interested in romantically, but is too shy to flirt with her. <laughs> Alpha male coach Snyder has them stay after class, and they become friends. Lisa comes to visit Jesse after school, and they discover Nancy Thompson's diary detailing her nightmares, which are strikingly similar to Jesse's. Their house is really fucking hot. So hot that small fires happen around the house and their birds spontaneously combusts. Jesse's father accuses him of sabotage. The following night, Jesse has a nightmare where he encounters Freddy, who tells him to kill for him. The dreams grow more intense, and Jesse unsuccessfully attempts different measures to keep himself awake. He eventually begins wandering the streets at night like a gay sex worker. One night, he is caught by alpha man and apparent leather daddy, Coach Schneider, ordering a drink in a gay bar, and is made to run laps at school as a punishment. After sending Jesse to the showers, Schneider is attacked by an unseen force that uses the jump ropes as bondage toys and drags him into the steamy showers. The unseen force is ready for a little homo horseplay and spanks leather daddy's ass with towels. Jesse vanishes into the steam, and Freddy emerges, killing Schneider by poking him in the rear. Afterwards, Jesse is horrified to see the glove on his hand. He is escorted home by the police after being found wandering the streets naked in the rain, as one does post-leather bar, and his parents begin to suspect that Jesse may be on drugs, or mentally disturbed, or just a little different from the other boys. Lisa takes Jesse to an abandoned factory where Freddy Krueger used to work, but they find nothing there. So much wasted time. The following night, Jesse goes to Lisa's pool party and kisses her in the cabana. Things start to get really hot, but he gets a case of nasty tongue, and he leaves in a panic. He goes to Grady's house, because that's what straight teenagers do instead of having sex with their girlfriends. There he confesses to killing Schneider and instructs Grady to watch him as he sleeps, and to stop him if he tries to leave. When Grady eventually falls asleep, Freddy emerges from Jesse's body and kills Grady. Freddy then changes back to Jesse, who finds himself looking at Freddy's laughing reflection in Grady's mirror. He flees before Grady's parents enter the room, and returning to Lisa's house, Jesse tells her what's going on. Lisa realizes that Jesse's terror is giving Freddy his strength, because of course, but he can't stop fearing him and transforms again. Freddy locks Lisa's parents in their bedroom and attacks her, but realizes he can't harm her due to Jesse's influence. Freddy goes outside where he begins to slaughter the partygoers. Lisa's father emerges with a shotgun, but Lisa stops him from shooting Freddy, who escapes in a ball of flame. Lisa drives to the factory facing sudden nightmares and having to control her fear before confronting Freddy. She pleads with Jesse to fight Freddy, but Freddy's hold is too strong. When Lisa confesses her love for Jesse and kisses Freddy, Jesse begins to fight back. Freddy combusts and turns to ash, from which Jesse emerges like a gay phoenix. Caca! <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Caca! Is that gayer? Caca! <laughs> Later, as Jesse, Lisa, and friends are taking the bus to school, Jesse notices similarities to his original nightmare and panics. After Lisa calms Jesse down, someone says that it's all over just before Freddy's clawed arm bursts through her chest. Freddy laughs as the bus drives into the field. The end. Thank God. Thank God. Wow. That was certainly a sequel to a movie. (laughs) 
Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was released on November the 1st, 1985 on 522 screens in New York, D.C., Detroit, and Texas. There are varying reports of how it performed opening weekend, with some publications claiming that it landed in the second or third spot. However, according to Box Office Mojo, it secured almost $3 million and got the number four spot. Other movies in the top ten that weekend included Death Wish 3, Jagged Edge, and Back to the Future. It would randomly re-enter the top ten again in January and grossed close to $30 million worldwide against a reported budget of $3 million. It's a hit. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, continue to franchise. A Nightmare in Elm Street 2 holds a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 33%. The site's consensus reads, An intriguing subtext of repressed sexuality gives Freddy's revenge some texture, but the nightmare loses its edge in a sequel that lacks convincing performances or memorable scares. Metacritic assigns the film a 43%. Critical reaction of the film was mixed upon release, with some criticism in comparison to its predecessor. Janet Maslin of the New York Times praised the film, saying that it has clever special effects and a good leading performance and a villain so chatty, he practically makes this a human interest story. The review also gave the lead performances positive reviews, noting Mr. Patton and Miss Myers make likable teenage heroes, and Mr. England actually turns Freddy into a welcome presence. Clue Gallagher and Hope Lang have some good moments as Jesse's parents, and Marshall Bell scowls ferociously as the coach who calls his charges dirt balls and who was eventually attacked by a demonic towel. Variety gave the film a positive review, saying episodic treatment is punched up by an imaginative series of special effects. The standout is a grisly chestburster set piece. In a negative review, people called the film a tedious, humorless mess. <laughs> Attacked by demonic towels. Oh, wait. That's that other thing. Tedious. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, no, wait. That other thing. Tedious. <laughs> um, it had some award nominations. Well, technically, it had one. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Movie. But it lost to Fright Night, but it was actually a very good year for that 1985, right? So the other nominees that year were Life Force and Return of the Living Dead and Reanimator. Mm-hmm. And Fright Night, good year. I yeah. like it. I can see Fright Night winning, but I would have really loved Return of the Living Dead to win for yeah. that year. I feel like if those movies were released today, that movie would probably have won. And who gives a shit about Reanimator? Except for everyone but me. <laughs> I'm just going to say, just about everybody else. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the film a little bit. Okay. Yeah. We're a lot of bit. A lot of bit? Yeah, a lot of bit. Yeah, there's some things to talk about. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to get to the big stuff, the meaty stuff, the stuff that the average person may not know about, right? Okay. Because this movie is infamous for several interesting reasons that we have already mentioned. But before we get into that, the pre-production for A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 began in April of 1985, and this thing was released in October, right? Uh, November the 1st. November? Okay. So uh, screenwriter Leslie Boehm actually pitched the producers with this idea of using pregnancy and possession as plot devices for the film. And she said, quote, my concept was a homage to Rosemary's baby. I came up with a plot that had a new family move into the house, a teenage boy, his pregnant mother, and a stepfather the boy didn't get along with. It was a real bloody, scary idea much more physical and realistic because the dream reality stuff was less central to these movies. Then my story was more of a possession scenario with Freddie getting inside the mother's womb, controlling the fetus. 
I wonder if it's like that X Files episode where like the guys like siamese twin that was like a, a lump or whatever detached and would go at night and like would crawl around and kill people really yeah there was an awesome x it was like yeah and um i'm wondering if the fetus would like actually exit the womb and go and kill people oh my god well, i'd kind of like to see that yeah so anyway new line passed on that <laughs> because uh the executive sarah risher was pregnant at the time and uh you know, we can all understand that that idea might have upset her, especially with things that we've talked about recently, just like shooting on the shooting the flames. We found right. that several of you listeners have lost your appetite for horror or couldn't do it while you were pregnant or shortly after you were pregnant because of, you know, the hormones and, and nature and things like that. And we have more comments about that coming up for the next shooting the flames already ready to go. So it's an interesting topic. It is. I'm actually very interested about why that happens, you know, so it's it's good to talk about i'm ready for shooting the flames yeah so they had some other ideas in their back pocket obviously they went with david chaskin's concept instead mm-hmm. how i mean but i mean we've all seen this franchise right so they would eventually have a fetus possession kind of later on yes they do and so and it was written by that writer oh really yes i didn't know that mm-hmm. i think it's uh number five four or five Yes, The Dream Child. The Dream Child. Mm -hmm. So obviously both films ended up using the spirit possession concept. Mm -hmm. But like we just said, the pregnancy idea would eventually be used in the sequel Dream Child, uh, which Boehm would write the script for. That's neat. I'm glad she got to go back and redo that. Yeah. So Robert Shea offered Wes Craven the chance to direct again, obviously, but he turned down the offer since he had many problems with the scripts, like the possessed parakeet that seemed really ridiculous to him and to everyone else. And of uh, Freddy merging with the main character and manifesting in real life at the pool party to kill scores of teenagers, of which many are bigger than him, which Craven thought would diminish Freddy's scare factor as Robert England is not very tall in stature. Okay. Yeah. And he was right. I think that's like one of the only times in the entire franchise where he's able to kind of like go into the real world and he doesn't do much, but like knock things off of tables. Well, I feel like it should have been like a big carry moment and it really wasn't. It was kind of boring to me. I really dislike that moment in the movie too, because as he's slowly becoming part of reality, he's affecting reality all over the place, like making locks. Yeah. Like that part of it. Yeah. You know? And then all of a sudden he's there I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of silly. I would have liked to see it through their eyes and actually show it be that kid that's doing it. Mm-hmm. Like a crazed version. Yeah. So uh, especially with what we kind of find out in the aftermath of like fun facts, which we'll get to because there's a little bit more hidden in there that some people might have obviously seen. Like I've seen it every time I watch this movie. I'm not sure you have because we've never mentioned it before. It'll oh be interesting. God. I'm super intrigued now. You won't be. (laughs) Maybe you will. I don't know. Obviously, they had to move on from Wes Craven because he outright refused because they were leaning away from the mythology that he had kind of set up. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Jack Shoulder, who had previously written and directed Alone in the Dark for New Line, was offered to direct. In a 2020 interview, he explained that he had no interest in making horror films and that his initial feeling was to turn Robert Shea down. And after realizing that A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, could put him on the map as director, he finally agreed. Uh, and But he would later go on go on and direct The Hidden, Renegades, and Wishmaster 2, Evil Never Dies, right? 
along with Alone in the Dark, which came before this. So he says he doesn't like horror and doesn't want to do horror, but that's what he's known for because it's the vast majority of his catalog. My God, The Hidden is such a good movie. I had no idea that these two films- That's I wanted to watch, yeah. It's good. I had no idea these two films like shared a director. The Hidden is a really good 80s horror movie. I've never Excellent. seen it. I've never heard of it. And I'd love to watch it. Let's watch it tonight. So when casting, New Line originally thought to save money by simply using an unnamed extra in a rubber mask to play Freddy- like had been done the case with like um, any of the masked mute impersonal killers like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. But they reconsidered when they realized that like the extra man had a gait and posture of like the dime store monster or Frankenstein's monster as opposed to Robert England's classically trained physical acting that he was doing and was known for and had become an icon as, right? And so they realized their mistake and the producers quickly brought on England for the rest of the film and the series. Oh my God. That seems like a a better choice. Agreed. Because in this particular movie, Freddie gets a little bit more chatty, right? Than he was in the first one. And he really is starting to like sort of gain personality and changing him into something even quieter than what he was in the first one would have just ruined that villain for the rest of the time. They could have like completely ruined this franchise. That's right. Because this was just the second one. That's right. I mean, it would have been done with, right? Yeah. He has some good quips in this movie. He has better quips coming up, but I mean, he, he gets, he gets pretty funny. Yeah. They, they're learning that they can lean on Robert England for a yeah. great performance more and more instead of just some guy that just happened to, to look like a fucking pedo right. <laughs> with Wes Craven. You know what I mean? But the, that extra is in the movie still. Um, so it played Freddy uh, and remained one scene in the film um, during Coach Snyder's death scene in the shower. It's kind of obscured and excessive water steam. So you you would never know it's not him. I hadn't. I did not know that. That is a really steamy scene. So good that they. Uh, in multiple ways. I mean, <laughs> demonic towels and ass whippings. I mean, Coach Snyder has a really hot ass. <laughs> Don't get carried away. It's the same guy that was um, in Starship Troopers that uh, was stuck in the base. He was the only survivor. And he was like, they're in my brain or whatever. <laughs> you should just kill me. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's a great actor. <laughs> he's And he was in uh, some other Verhoeven movies, too. Really? Yeah. So principal photography commenced in June 1985. And this thing was released in November. Uh, so director Jack Shoulder said in an interview that he had very little time to prepare and that the movie contained a lot of special effects, none of which he knew how to do. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? Yeah. So they he weren't never, ready to make this movie at all? No. Well, I mean, he had hired people and the studio knew who to hire. Right. You know, and so it was able to get like the same guy that did the the Freddy makeup effects from the first movie. Okay. You know? And so, uh, of course, they were fine. And, and a director will always be fine if they have a, if they listen to and have a really good special effects supervisor on set. That's true. And and trust in them, right? Yeah. Which I assume he would do since they had little time to prepare and he had no idea how special effects worked. Either writer, you have to have a really good technical director, like, say, James Cameron, who actually started in SFX and things mm-hmm. like that, you know? So, um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that, like... The look and feel of this movie. It looks fine. I don't think it looks as as cinematic as the first film. No. I think Wes Craven knows how to shoot a picture. Agreed. Um, you know, and this this kind of looked a little TV movie-ish at times. But I thought the, the special effects were fine. Uh, although the bus miniatures at the beginning looked fucking trash to me. You know? But that's all done in camera. Everything was done in camera. Nothing was really done in post. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, the editing for this was probably done as they were... F- Putting it in, like, this timeline is really fast for post production. Have you ever heard of a movie that had a kind of like a timeline like that that started like 
four or five months before it was released? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's possible. A lot of these movies are, I mean, fucking everything everywhere all at once was filmed in something like 27 days. Which yeah. Which is insane to me. But a lot of post-production probably went into that movie. Oh, yeah. A lot. I mean, the only kind of turnaround for movies like this that come out like months and months after the filming ends is probably safe for things like direct-to-home video release, right? TV movies. Right. That mm-hmm. too. And I I agree with you. I think that a lot of some of the look of this movie feels very much like something that was direct to video. Yeah. And at the time, we know that like the home video market was exploding and they probably were just ready to like, let's make this movie. Let's throw it into the theaters for a little bit and then throw it onto home video where it's really going to gain popularity, maybe. Mm -hmm. So I also want to talk about the sound and the music. Uh, the music is a tar- departure in this movie, right? Because it's the only movie of the entire series not to use Charles Bernstein's original theme or variation of it, which of course came from Wes Craven's right. idea of that song. But this is by Christopher Young. And we have covered him extensively before because we love his scores. That's right. Uh, he's done Species, Copycat, the very first deep dive we ever did, Rounders, Urban Legend, The Gift, The Grudge, Exorcism of Emily Rose, Drag Me to Hell, which is like quintessential horror movie soundtrack, right? Uh, Sinister, The New Pet Cemetery, and The Empty Man, which is an amazing score. I like it very much. Yeah. So this guy, you can never like if you if you listen to like a John Williams score or a James James Horner or a Jerry Goldsmith or generally speaking their arrangements and the instruments they use and, and the kind of the texture of layers, like you can tell who's composing, right? You can almost never tell with Christopher Young. It's always so different. I it's, did, ama- it's amazing just to see what his his oeuvre. And it's it's neat that you would say that because I noticed the music in this movie in certain moments, and I was just like, "Who did this?" Like, and then so I pulled up IMDb, and I was like, "The fuck you say?" I was just like, "Really?" <laughs> because yeah. I don't know a lot of like film composers. You know, I, mean, I know the biggies, right? But I certainly know Christopher Young because we've talked about him a lot, and I really do appreciate his work. And it was I was shocked. And these are just the horror movies. He's done a shit ton more that are not horror. Yes, I love it. So, so shocked to know that it was him. I mean, and this is early in his career, I would imagine. I think we had him on pretty high up on our top ten composers. We have did. to go back and listen. Yeah. But he's he's continuing to make really good horror scores. And um, you know, we might have to eventually revisit that. I think we need to. Maybe at the five year mark. Right. Because I am I've been compiling a list of other like scores and things like that. So I'm ready to talk about that topic again for sure. Totally. So I do want to say that there's one part of the, the soundtrack that I fucking hated. And it wasn't the music. It was a goddamn whale song. That was, was constantly used. <laughs> whale song? Yes, they're constantly using... <laughs> you know the fucking whale song? Yes. <laughs> they were constantly using whatever fucking Freddy was around. <laughs> And I was like, this is tearing me out of this movie. (laughs) Like, you're trying to put, like, Inya, like, fucking, like, whale song from, like, Star Trek 4 or some shit (laughs) in this goddamn movie and make it sound creepy. Whale song will never sound fucking creepy. I think after this recording, you're going to have to show me, like, an example. I can't believe you didn't notice that. I did not. I did not notice it. Every time we go, like, the fucking whale song. (laughs) And that would look at me like. Yeah. No. I was kind of wrapped up in the other music i did not notice any fucking whale songs <laughs> which is sad now i'm sad that i didn't you, know, you if you listen for it 
you will be bothered through it and you will not be able to unhear it every time you see this movie. Well, now I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. Sure. So it's just fucking whale song everywhere. It's annoying. So, and I thought it was ridiculous. Well, but I'm waiting for an example. I love it. <laughs> well, anyway, I'll show you after this, but we have to get to the big gay theme. Okay, let me open this beer. So, film commentators have often remarked on the film's perceived homoerotic theme, claiming its subtext suggests that Jesse is some kind of repressed homosexual, with the possibility of Freddy representing his homosexual urges. Mm. What do you think about that? I don't know that it's perceived or even subtext. So much as flaunted? Yeah, flaunted. And text? Directly in your face. (laughs) It's flaunted and it's actual text. Yeah. Come on. This movie is so gay. Like, I, anybody who's like, do you think? Um, if you ever ask that question to me, I'm like, yes. And so should you. And so does everybody else. Dogs and horses think that this was a gay movie. My dog knew this movie was gay. <laughs> For real. So many, so many fucking examples. And not just in, like, dialogue, but, like, things that you can, like, like visual things. It's yeah. a lot. Yeah, okay. So some oft-cited scenes are... Jesse and Ron's, or I guess Gaby or whatever. Grady. His name's Ron Grady. Yeah, Ron Grady. So Jesse and Grady's friendly rivalry and their wrestling, complete with bare-ass jockstrap reveal. That's right. They're pulling down pants and shit. Yeah. And then Jesse is drawn to a gay-coded fetish club randomly. Yep. He just walks there, walks in. Mm -hmm. Lots of, like, leather daddies and shit. Yep. And at the club. He encounters his gym teacher who decides to bring him back to school alone that night to punish him for attempted underage drinking, only to end up dying naked in the shower after his ass is whipped by a flying white towel. <laughs> Demonic towels. This is probably the gayest moment in the movie for me. I mean, like just leaving- strips him naked and then spanks him. That's right. Leaving that bar. In the shower. <laughs> leaving that bar. He punishes Jesse and then is like SM to death. You know what I mean? Like just a continuation of that fucking bar. Rips his clothes off, I guess. beats him with a towel. I'm yeah. like, Jesus Christ. And then later at the pool party, he's making out with his girlfriend, you know, his beard. And Jesse's uh escapes back to Ron Grady's house after he attempts to make out with her and it fails and uh you know only to feel freddie's urges that's right i mean just like every other straight guy in the world you're making out with your hot girlfriend like and then run away to your bestie bestie male friend's house that's right who pulled your pants down days earlier or whatever i felt a type of way help me (laughs) and that like make out scene is getting really hot too you know what i mean like He's got breasts exposed. You know, he's got that Freddy tongue coming out. I don't know what he's doing, but he's like on her thorax or something. He's like not even on her boobs. He's not on her face or her neck. He's like right in the, like right above her stomach. Like, what is he doing down there? (laughs) He's like trying to tongue the belly button. Chris, come on. The belly button's further down. Like he's between. (laughs) (laughs) He likes cleavage. I don't know. No, the cleavage was above. He was in between. (laughs) What was he doing there? (laughs) He likes to press a diaphragm. Where's that? (laughs) He wasn't doing it right. I mean, Uh. for sure. But yeah, he like runs away to his friend's house and he was like, I want you to watch me sleep, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) for real, please. Really? So, right. So we're going to have to zoom out a little bit, right? So that's what's in this movie. And, you know, during this time, this is 1985. It's like the height of the AIDS crisis. Uh, You know, so we have to talk about that and we have to talk about David Chaskin, the writer, and we have to talk about all the controversy surrounding this. Okay. And in 1985, that that kind of represents a huge sociopolitical shift 
from 1980. And if you want to hear more about that, go to our deep dive of Cruising, which came out in 1980, where it kind of shows a world where gays are seemingly on the verge of wide acceptance. That's right. Right? And this is before the Reagan Revolution and all this stuff, right? People describe that time as kind of everyone's kind of bisexual. You know, everyone's like kind of goes both ways. No one asks, no one tells. You just do it. People are all hanging out. It's the tail end of the disco culture. And the, you know, everyone had worked up for years with like the, you know, the hippie movement and the free in the in the free sex and love movement. You know, and the the tumultuous uh, 60s and, and the kind of the softening in the 70s. And then the conservative backlash didn't happen until the 80s. And then, of course, that was compounded by the AIDS crisis. You know, um, back then they said, you know, sex didn't have diseases and Coke wasn't addictive, you know. Jesus. And so they all had to pay the check, essentially. Right. And so that's kind of where we're at. And so this is also when all these slashers kind of gained momentum because it was kind of this counterculture movement in a way that supported but also countered the conservative movement. Their lessons were the same as the conservative lessons, but the violence and blood and gore was counterculture enough to attract the teenagers. So it was like this vicious cycle. That's right. And I'm not sure that the people who made these movies were trying to create that kind of like message to people, like literally that sex is wrong or bad. But I mean, that's what ended up happening in these movies. Although it's fun to say that a lot of these movies were denounced by all these conservative people. I don't know that it's even subtext. I think, you know, sex is bad. The sluts are getting killed. This is a good girl. She's studious and brunette, you know, and she's going to survive the night by babysitting and being a wholesome person. And the only way she's going to survive is by picking up the phallus and using it herself. That's true. I think you've like (laughs) (laughs) summed it all up. (laughs) Yeah. So obviously in 85, it was the height of the gay panic with a huge amount of homophobia in the news, politics, et cetera. You know, and many people in the media and certainly politics were calling AIDS and HIV the gay cancer. That's right. I think it was pretty rampant then that people just assumed the only people who could get this disease were gay people. And that was bad enough. And I think like uh, the Reagan administration refused to even acknowledge it until like the last year of their administration or something. And even that was barely crazy for like something like eight years or whatever. They didn't, you know, ever do anything. I mean, even like Tammy Faye Baker acknowledged it before. Yeah. Like, well, the the kind of things started shifting in Hollywood and certainly in politics when Rock Hudson, who mm-hmm. was this big, huge, you know, leading man superstar from you know fifties, sixties, uh, had just died, and there, you know, of 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 it, it came out that he had died of AIDS, and this spawned a huge witch hunt in Hollywood and elsewhere for any closeted gays that might be lurking about. Right. And so TV shows, movies, they were all doing blood tests on their actors. Journalists were stalking actors and even posing as friends of friends to try and out people in Hollywood. And this happened to Mark Patton, who plays Jesse in this movie, who was asked about his friend, Timothy Patrick Murphy, who was actually his boyfriend and a star on uh, the TV show, hit TV show at the time, Dallas, who was dying of, of AIDS and did die. Uh, and trying to get some some news. I mean, uh, this is surrounding, like, you see this everywhere. People were following Freddie Mercury was dying, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and they were following him around, you know, and trying to take pictures of him on, you know, as sickly as possible and just horrible, horrible time. And really, people of, like, the older, like, the, the gays of the 
the younger boomers, I feel like, and the older Gen X are just kind of thin on the ground these days because all of those people's friends, like Mark Patton to this day says, all my friends, all the, my boyfriends, like pretty much everyone's dead. I have no friends my age because of that, you know, because everyone was just dying. And I have, um, I have family members who are older gay men, right? And they will tell stories like that. I've been to way too many funerals, like in my younger days, because people were dying of this disease, and it was a scary, scary time for for gay people, and in every way, not just like health wise, but like politically and socially, well, and especially and jobs that, and yeah. I mean, because they they turned around and like people who knew that they were homosexual even treated them differently, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, this was a brand new kind of disease, and people just didn't understand. And it wouldn't be till much later on in the eighties that people would realize, you know, it's not just gay or people. Even the nineties, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's like, maybe the nineties too, but I I feel like by I the late, I don't 80s, think it was like the the shrugged off the panic about it it was a huge fear me growing up in the 80s and 90s and i don't think it was really un- truly understood that it was only like a you know transmitted in certain ways you know by the early 90s i think they knew it was a sexual disease oh of course you know but i feel like no i'm talking about like co-workers and friends and family and thinking like just hugging you they were gonna get it you know what i mean oh yeah but I feel like, you know, by by at least the early 90s, late late 80s, like they it wasn't just a gay thing. Like people had started to know that other people were getting AIDS, too. Right. Yeah. But during this time, it was just awful for any gay person. Yeah. And so this what this leads to is that a lot of people, including myself, believe that writer David Chaskin exploited the situation and laid it out as subtext very intentionally in this movie. Mm hmm. So when the mainstream was still homophobic, he outright denied it. He's oh, this is just incidental. You're you're putting your own fears onto this movie. And then when stances started to soften, as we get into the 2000s, he admitted to writing it in a subtext, but said it was meant it was not meant to be homoerotic, but rather a homophobic stance. So and he outright said homophobic. In this interpretation, Freddie is the disease and the urge that Jesse must turn his back on and not in the gay way in order to truly start his pure traditional relationship with girls, especially Lisa, <laughs> but especially Lisa. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Well, that's what it was. It was, you know, the fear of coming out, the fear of disease, the fear of being gay and, and all of that and personalized into, you know, Freddie. I mean, I don't really read it that way, which is shitty, you know, so it's like, should we shit on this movie or we should take ownership of it? You know what I mean? That's the debate now. And obviously the gays have taken ownership of it. Yes, we have, you know, which is fine, I guess, but that's not really what it was. Original intent was, you know, it's exploitation. So finally, when acceptance of gays hit critical mass, essentially, and, you know, just this past five, 10 years, uh, he owned up to it and has said that it wasn't meant to be homophobic, but another, oft-used horror theme of, you know, the adolescent struggle through the lens of the added burden of possibly being gay. Okay, he wrote the fucking thing. Yeah. Right? I so mean, he's had three different stances going through the years that mirror people's public opinions. So so he's full of shit. He really is full of shit. And I don't like this man. Like, I've seen him in interviews and things like that, in documentaries. And he, he has a little smirk on his face. And I yeah. Just, yeah. He's like a fucking douchebag. Yeah. Like, all this stuff is ridiculous And he's still me. saying some weird, off-putting shit. You know, like, quote, it was supposed to stay a subtext. I didn't write 
Jesse screams like a girl. And he said that directly to Mark Patton's fucking face. That's right. And he has often claimed that the only reason, I mean, this was later on or earlier. Uh, he said that the only reason there's gay subtext is because that's the way that Mark Patton played that fucking role. He blamed it all on him. Blamed everything on him. Yeah. Which is also really fucking shitty. I no. mean, that's ridiculous. Because imagine me. like everything we just talked about going on in Mark Patton's life with everyone, you know, dying around him and everything happening kind of politically. And he had just made it in Hollywood. And now all of a sudden there's this witch hunt, mm-hmm. you know, and he was vilified for being the the male final girl. Right. A final girl as a concept. And we've mentioned this before and talked about it probably at least a couple of times before. Maybe kind of a sexist construct in and of itself, or at least in its original form, right? The girl must forsake her gentle nature, pick up the phallus and use it as a weapon to claim her power in order to defeat the slasher. She must actually become more man-like. That's right. We have talked about this a lot. Versus a man cannot go through that same journey without actually first losing his masculinity Mm -hmm. and then gaining it back at the end to be the final, to be a final girl. Cause he has nothing to lose first like a girl does, or he has something to lose before that, you know, it's not the hero's journey. And so it's a really sexist lens to look at something through. And of course the gays have taken ownership of that too, you know, That's in right. a way. And so if, uh, you know, uh, women, you know, um, it's kind of taken in the final girl, but we all have to acknowledge where that came from. And that is a little, you know, I don't want to say the word, but problematic. It's a little problematic. Do you feel like Jesse's character goes through this, that he has to lose his masculinity a little bit? I mean, I know within the subtext and the way the movie plays out, like I kind of see that. I think it's showing a person that has already lost it. But as the camera is on, he's already having those nightmares and everything else. And we see kind of who he is and Mm -hmm. the struggles that he has and where he is not flirting with the girl and being too shy and having nightmares and screaming like a girl. And then he you know, has to like kind of become a man and profess his love for a woman before he can be rid of Freddie. Right. Well, so he has to take his manhood back. Well, and ultimately he's saved by a woman in this movie. Like she's the one who shows yeah. him the way. And he wants the final girl. It's her. <laughs> yeah. She's the final girl. I mean, ultimately, but she's also that like the heroine, she comes in and saves the day. And I mean, if you're going to think about from like a toxic masculinity perspective, what's more emasculating than having a woman come and rescue you as a straight man or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's part of it. And he's a, you know, final girl in his own right. If that's what you want to say, or I want to own it, or that's like some sort of like a position of power. I don't think it is, you know, depending on the story, you know, I think a victim, I think it's now become a supposed victim that is claiming their own power to take ownership of the situation. Right. Like the, the first evolution of that maybe being along the lines of like Sydney, from scream you know versus someone that you know although she was still echoing the you know i'm the virginly studious brunette just an updated version of it you know so maybe it's it's more along the lines of something like later on like something from it follows i have been a victim and i also am a horny person i'm gonna go have sex well sydney has sex and scream i mean like she breaks the rules herself and she does that's that's kind of like the the birth of the new final girl Ultimately, I'd like us to get to a place where the final girl is genderless, right? It doesn't matter because heroes overcome all these things and they don't have to like change anything about their sexuality or gender. Yeah, but if it's overcoming like something that's a part of yourself, you know, like uh, so intrinsic as like sexuality, like Mm -hmm. it's a sexist hero's journey and it doesn't quite fit for a man because the man doesn't have to give anything up to pick up the phallus because he already has it between his legs. Uh, I guess that's true. 
That's very true. So it's just problematic. <laughs> it is. You can say the word again. Let's just write good characters. <laughs> For real. <laughs> <laughs> Which this movie mm, has a couple, maybe. <laughs> so let's put down our homophobia and pick up that book that says Heroes of a Thousand Faces. You know, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, like there's there's this question of like who knew right during the filming of this, and that's uh, director Jack Shoulder uh, to this day denies knowledge. Like he, he his I don't know I'm on the fence with him because he had to have known while he was shooting those shower scenes and in the, the fucking gay bar. He's like, was that a gay bar? And <laughs> you know, you're no one's that much of a square. No, I mean you knew what you were shooting. You were placing the shots and you were telling people what to do. I mean, even people who have not been to a gay bar at least know if something is like fetishized, that that type of bar, right? You know. You yeah, know. and there was a lot of women in that bar. I want to say at least 50% of the people in there were women, mm-hmm. and they were also dressed up in the kind of fetishy gear. So I think they were, but there were literally the first two seconds of pan in that bar. You see two guys kind of kissing on each other. That's right. So that was, that was directed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he you didn't. Know. He didn't know. Unless it's like shadow directed by like RuPaul, or, you know. <laughs> you better kiss. <laughs> also, co-star Robert Russler said he knew from the script, and he's the one that played Don Grady. Right. And Mark Patton said he didn't realize it until a few few weeks in, when there was like a weird homoerotic scene with Freddie. Are you talking about like the the glove? They, like they the, was, he was like lips or whatever grazing his glove against his lips and yeah, being like your beauty or whatever He's like, you have the body i have the brain yes right? yeah and originally the direction was that he was going to stick his knife and through it into his mouth mm-hmm. caressingly and then put it out and like his agent was like do not let him do put his knife into your mouth your career will be ruined it so, was anyway it was anyway and but i he doesn't have to do that in this scene he does not have to put his knife no. into his mouth it is there on the fucking screen it is so incredibly gay yeah so uh if you're interested in any of this stuff you should follow up with the shutter documentary called scream queen my nightmare on elm street which Mm -hmm. was produced by mark Patton, right and so this follows the story of mark Patton in the aftermath of the film the death of his friends and his boyfriend and the mountain of vitriol he received over the years and so he moved to mexico when he got sick with hiv and all the related illnesses that came afterwards, such as tuberculosis and various cancers. So he's been sick on and off for like, you know, like a good 10 years, probably into the 90s and didn't get completely healthy. I don't think until more recently to around 2010 or so. And so he finally resurfaced sometime after becoming well and started taking ownership of his own story and cementing himself as a horror icon and becoming an AIDS activist, donating most of his appearance fees at these conventions to HIV treatment groups and charities benefiting LGBT youth, such as the Trevor Project. Which we donate to every October. And you so. do see him kind of confront the writer. David Chaskin. David Chaskin in this. And so he kind of forgives him very, very quickly, you know, because it's like avoiding an awkward moment. But he was also given a talking to from the director, which was like, you've held on to this for too long. Just let it go. And I think that was the director just being annoyed, um, but also get some good advice as well. You know, and so it's it's not a great documentary. Um, I gave it like a three and a half star, but it's really interesting. and It's worth your time just to know the story behind it. 
And so uh, I'd say it's a definitely a good companion piece and probably more worth your time than actually watching this movie. <laughs> yeah, I really, really like this documentary. I can't remember what I gave it. It was probably around three, three and a half. You gave it a three. Yeah. So thank you. My God, you know me better than I know myself. Apparently. I just checked Letterboxd last uh, night because I was curious. <laughs> you usually really like talking. I was like, really? A three? And I had rated a three as well. And so uh, I actually watched it again after watching this movie. And I actually rated it a little higher because I was less annoyed this time with Mark Patton kind of whining. And I felt like it was less whining now that I've seen the movie and see yeah. everything that happened. I kind of like the documentary because I like I'm, – I'm okay with the the whiny parts of it because I, I feel like this man has a story to tell. And I, I really enjoy the parts of him like coming to terms with it on his own and less the times when he's – actually confronting people and i'm thankful that's not the biggest part of this movie yeah. you know i also like that there's moments in here where they have like his co-stars like sitting around talking about this subject right sort of with him and i think that's that's a good thing to do and it's a good way to like have the conversation about this this man lost his career and he had a very promising career from the movie he made like right before he was in broadway with fucking chair and that was yeah. made into a movie and know? so um I mean, he he was going to do good things and then it was kind of taken away from him from homophobia and everything that we've already talked about in this deep dive, essentially. Yeah. Well, it's like all this shit was going on and he was followed by that journalist who, who pretended to be a friend and was trying to get in- information about his dying boyfriend in a hospital. You know, meanwhile, he's getting sick mm-hmm. and was asked to actually play someone dying of AIDS. Jesus Christ. You know, because it was starting to get dramatized even then. You know, in 86 or so. And he was like, I cannot do this. And so he fled. He he went to Mexico. No one could find him. and No one knew where he was. And he was there for for 20 years without anyone knowing whatever happened to him. Well, and we've already talked about how the gays have sort of claimed this movie now. And I think that's good because they've also claimed Mark Patton. And he's been able to come back post-documentary and maybe start to build a career and at least have fans and followers and get to live his best life a little bit. And at the Overlook Film Festival, we were able to see him in a new horror movie called Swallowed by the same director that directed The Ruins. You know, and it was really fun seeing him and he did a damn good job. He was good in that movie. And that director is also gay. You know what I mean? So it's like paying it fucking forward. And I feel like other gay horror directors, if you have a place for Mark Patton in your movie or even straight horror directors, put him in it. You know what I mean? Like he's a good actor and he deserves the limelight. I feel. Yeah. Agreed. Do you have any fun facts for me? Oh, my God. Funner than talking about AIDS. Everything's going to be more fun than that. Thank God. So this is kind of obvious, but in the opening scene, the bus driver is Robert England without the Freddy makeup. Yes, yes. For those of you who don't know. Okay. And so supposedly Michael J. Fox was considered for the role of Jesse Walsh, but he was unable to do uh, do it because of his commitments to Back to the Future, which came out, you know, the same time, and Teen Wolf. I wonder what the fuck that would look like. I mean, I'm trying to picture it in my head, but... I think it would have looked fine. You think it would have been a better movie? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it takes a lot to make this movie better than what it is. (laughs) Yeah. I I think he's more charismatic. Yeah. Than Mark Patton. But he's also kind of like goofy and funny. So, I mean, like. Yeah. I don't think it was the right role for Michael J. Fox. It would have been different. But um, I think Mark Patton did a fine job, you know, not that it was the right role for him. So Robert Rustler, obviously, who played, you know, Don Grady. His friend auditioned for the role on the last day of shooting Weird Science, and Robert Downey Jr. drove him to the audition. I love Weird Science too. Robert Downey Jr. keeps popping up. 
He just know everybody is what it is. Yeah. He's friends with everybody, trying to get all their drugs and shit. <laughs> I guess so. So in the breakfast scene near the beginning, the family is eating Fu Man Chews cereal. Problematic. Did you see that? Yes, because yeah. she put those little fingernails on, right? Yes. She's like, I'm trying to get to the prize and it's little fingernails. And it's obviously they're trying to make him think of Freddie when he sees it. But I was just like, racist. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least it wasn't like like a racist picture on there. It was like more of like a monster that did not look Asian or nope. anything like that. But it was still Fu Man shoes made me like cringe. I completely agree with you. And I didn't know where else to put it in my notes. So I had to put it in the fun facts. Thank you. I mean, it's fine. Cause I was just like, I paused it for a minute and I was just like, no, you know, <laughs> I paused a full minute to clutch my pearls. <laughs> so anyway, another obvious one, uh, Jesse, this is the one that was talking about before, right? Mm-hmm. Jesse has a hat and a separate green and red sweater in his closet. A reference to the fact that Freddy Krueger is possessing his body while he's sleeping. In fact, Lisa helps him put shit up, right? And she's putting the hat and the sweater up in the closet. That's right. And it's exactly what Freddie wears. And I'm like, that's why he should have been wearing it. Mm-hmm. You know, they may not have recognized it was him. If his face is color covered with blood and he's got the sweater on and the hat on and the glove on, you know, that's probably what they should have done rather than put Freddie in the real world. And I think that would have been more interesting. I completely agree with you on that fact. Yes. Because he had the outfit in his fucking closet. It's true. I like so, that. Yeah. Last one. Uh, so during the iconic scene where Jesse's dancing strangely and when he and Lisa are ready, uh, reading Nancy's misplaced diary, he wears a light yellow button down shirt with large black cross shapes. And in it chapter two from 2019, Richie wears an, a nearly identical shirt. And it was also noted that similarly, both characters arcs involved the subtle revelation that they're closeted gay men, which is used against them by Freddy Krueger and Pennywise respectively. Oh my God. I did not know that about, I mean, I knew that Richie was characterized as gay in that movie. The only but... difference is like the little crosses are red on Richie's shirt versus black. That's fucking cool. I'm glad that somebody would throw that kind of egg in there, Easter egg in there. That's great. Yeah. Jesus, that's the only good thing about it. Chapter two, in my opinion, is that character and his. <laughs> well, rewatch like, it. You'll like it more. I okay. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> okay, those were fun facts. I liked them very much. Funner than talking about AIDS, but talking about AIDS is very important. Yes. So we have to do it, mm-hmm. and we also have to ask some questions about a Nightmare on Elm Street two. Freddy's Revenge. The gay one. <laughs> the gay one. Nightmare on Elm Street 2. The gay one. The gay inning. <laughs> uh, we're not going to ask if it's a horror movie because clearly it's a horror movie, right? Yes. Uh, when we get back into more adjacent fare, we'll bring that question back. But for right now, were you scared watching a Nightmare on Elm Street 2? You know, not really. Uh, but there was some disturbing v- visages, right? Um, some disturbing images, I would say. Yeah. You know, so for me, I was not watching this like under any kind of, you know, uh, assisted substance substances. Okay. Stone cold sober. And to me, like the scariest things in this movie have to do with animals, not counting the stupid parrot bursting into flames or whatever. So that was dumb. St- stupid. But the dogs walking up at the factory and having like the children's masks on them or something or chil- when I first saw them, I was like, it's something in my brain kind of broke because I was like, these are like little people in a costume or children in a costume. But then they were on four legs and it looked super like mutant to me and like it freaked mm-hmm. me out a little bit. And then later there's like a fucking cat 
killing a rat or something and it's like horrifying the way it was because they're they're not real they're like puppets because it was a nasty ass rat being killed by a dis- disgusting like cat thing or something i don't know but it was like pet cemetery or something and i'm like the scariest shit in this movie has nothing to do with freddy you know and more about the stuff that it's around him and then those stupid fucking whale songs oh my god yeah i'm sure that would frighten me too if i had noticed it and i was watching this movie um, a little aided by a substance, right? And those dogs, like they have scared me in the past, right? I think I talked about last week, I, I had seen this movie before I saw Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, right? Because I was sort of sneaking up to watch it while my parents were watching it with their friends. So I, I watched a lot of this movie as a young kid. And those dogs were frightening, right? Yeah, they're disturbing looking. And then they, they just show life. up and then they're not there anymore. You know, like right. they have nothing to do with anything. It's At just, all. Well, just there to be like Cerberus. The gates of hell I was going to say, it's kind of like Cerberus is what it is. Yeah. But on this particular watch, I was watching it last night and the dogs walk up and I could not stop fucking laughing at it. And I don't know why. I was just like. Yeah, I had I was, the opposite experience. I know. I was just fucking tickled, I guess. And I just. <laughs> Look at the little doggy. It's like the mask on. <laughs> I was just like, it just looks so stupid to me. I could not, I'm laughing about it now. I was just like. What is that? <laughs> so, yeah, I I feel like this movie could be scary, should be scary, but it's not. And the thing that really ruins it for me is Freddy coming into real life, right? Yeah. And I, I think that kind of ruins the scare of Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger operates best in a dreamlike environment where he can do anything he wants to. Yeah. And if a movie is talking about Freddy Krueger becoming physical, like a corporeal being in our environment, he shouldn't also be able to lock doors by not touching it. You know what I mean? Like it just, yeah. it doesn't work for me sometimes. What they did in the first movie by bringing him out of Nancy's dream and her having all those booby traps or whatever, they were trying to do that again. Like the only way to destroy somebody who lives in a dream world is to have them be real. You know what I mean? And I feel like in other movies of the franchise that we'll start talking about next year and beyond, like they shy away from that. They yep. don't bring him back into the real world anymore because it's until not J- scary. Jason versus Freddy. And yeah. Until that movie, which I, we're not going to watch that and talk about that movie. So oh. don't worry about it. Well, maybe on Patreon. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so out of five stars, what did you rate? And I ran on street two. I gave it, I think a two and a half. Yeah, you did. Maybe I, maybe I rated it up to a three. I'm not sure. I gave it three stars, but for a lot of other reasons. I mean, I don't think that it's a good movie, really. No, and anything that's not good, like I can't even say it's good, is yeah. less than a three star, right? Three but is is above above average, middle of the middle of the road, but good still. I still this is not like good. It. It's not good, but I still like it. I still like to watch it. I'll watch it from time to time. I'm one of those gays who have claimed this movie. You know, like I I really like to watch it for the gayness of it all and and i like that and i also like mark Patton a lot and i mean and i just like freddy krueger too everything this movie has to offer i can find better somewhere else so easily there are also worse examples or worse entries in this franchise in this movie i feel so yeah yeah three stars i think is solid enough uh but finally who's the hottest guy in the gay one You know, I think it's got to be, uh, I think it's got to be Grady. Yeah. Robert Rustler. Yeah. All the way. He's a hot guy. He's nice. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's cute. Although I think they darkened his skin to make him look more ethnic. 
God, more problematic with this movie. I don't know that for sure, but he looks white now. Yeah. Ugh, great. Okay, I'm going to have to lower my rating because this movie is super problematic. <laughs> Fuck me. Okay, go back and listen to this movie because of the whale songs. We'll lower it a half star at least. <laughs> I'm telling you. He's cute, though. The only part in this movie that I thought he was not cute was when they were all having lunch in the cafeteria and he had his mouth like full of food like and was having a conversation and i was like you are so attractive please don't do this anymore <laughs> <laughs> it was off put no he was great i thought he was a good actor too you know and he's yeah. had a steady career mm-hmm. uh, mostly on i think tv and things like that but this is goddamn will songs <laughs> every time freddie would go on the screen I, I just i just thought someone was gonna start walking out with a microphone going who can say where the road goes where the road goes only time <laughs> great i feel like we're gonna listen to enya for the rest of the night <laughs> Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. As always, we want to know what you think about this movie. Get your subtext and all. You can find us at The Film Flamers on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And now TikTok. Or you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Touch me all night long. Whip us with those gym towels. <laughs> Jump ropes all night long. <laughs> Wrapped around my wrists. <laughs> That's it for the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise for this year. Stay tuned next September when we bring it back up. But. We have a lot more to talk about in October. We're going to be talking about the movie Tales from the Dark Side. And Tales from the Crypt. And after that, the triumphant return of the Flamers Top Tens. That's right. But before then, we also have a Patreon where we have a bonus episode where people are right now choosing which Wes Craven movie we'll be covering. And it's looking like it's a toss-up right now between Serpent in the Rainbow and Shocker. Mm. I'm ready to talk about either one of those movies. But the jokes in the Shocker episode are going to be tops. So if you want to vote in that poll and all future polls, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers and join the family. Well, Robert, I think I need to go to bed and dream of a better Freddy movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess. I mean... You have the body and I have the brains. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds like you've been having some sweet dreams. Because it's certainly a fucking dream. <laughs> can't remember any fucking lines from that movie now, too. Welcome to lameness, bitch. I don't know. <laughs> He's in my body. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs>